Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. There's that great book about uh, Mumbai. I think it was called Maximum City. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that? It was yeah. that wonderful story about a, an Indian journalist who came back to the city and was just amazed at how many people were required to actually live daily life. And God help you if you try to interfere with the process. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most uh, vibrating, uh, energetic cities that I've been very fortunate <laughs> to grow up in. Yes, I love the city. Which part of the city did you grow up in? I grew up actually in central Mumbai, uh, this place called uh, Dadar, which was uh, right, oh. my school was about 10 minutes away. So that's, that's where I actually grew up. And uh, the way it has changed over the last 30 years has been just phenomenal. I think mean, there are just people all over the place. I mean, you know, it, we we had a we have a ha, have like a lot of people living in in Mumbai, but this is just you know it's just exploded, <laughs> and a lot of migration, a lot of people coming into the city. But I still love the city. It's it's got a lot of character. It's got a lot of uh, energy that I think is is unparalleled in my mind. It's fun. It's fun. I'm in Dallas today having a cup of coffee with uh, Gotham Thakur, who's the uh, CEO of uh, SE2, yep. uh, which is one of the world's leading uh, players in. I guess transforming the insurance space. Yeah, we're we're what we call the third-party administrator <laughs> of uh, the US. Yes. But we, we we met quite a few years ago when you were running the uh, global BPO uh, for Infosys. That's right. Which is uh, India's largest technology company. Yes, one of the largest. Yes. Um, and you know, you know, before we talk about insurance, it'd be, it'd be interesting to reflect a little bit on that journey because, uh, I mean, Infosys. I've spoken a number of times in India for Infosys and for other big Indian tech companies. And the rise of globalization and, and technology was also the story of India's rise as a technology partner. Yeah. I mean, how many people were working for you at that stage? At, at well, the, the business that I was running uh, had about 30,000 people, uh, but Infosys as a company had, I think, close to 160, 170,000 people globally. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it started, you know, in '81, and then you know the, the founders sort of got together and and uh, they built that business. Uh, once the globalization sort of happened in 1991, they eased a lot of the restrictions in the economy. That's when it started taking off. The technology sector in India started taking off, and I think they just started. You know, it started with the whole cost model, and then eventually, I think. Uh, People started to come to India for cost, they stayed for quality. <laughs> and now, of course, there's a lot of uh, transformation going on in that industry in itself as well. So I think the industry grew out of the uh, liberalization efforts in the early 90s, and I think uh, this, they really took off in the early 2000s. I, I, I've been to these cities like Hyderabad, yeah. uh, which aside from being famous for having amazing biryani, yeah. <laughs> are also famous for being these cities that have essentially been created by outsourcing. They have. I mean, I, I think you know it's moved from tier one to tier two, and now tier three cities. Where you know, and I think some of it has to do with the fact that there's a lot of infrastructure and the colleges that are actually coming in and around uh, those tier three cities, and people becoming what used to be people becoming mobile. You know, and having the ability to sort of you know travel around. Now I think because companies are now going to those cities in tier three cities. Hyderabad used to be a tier two for a long time. Uh, but I think it's, it's certainly helped the fact that there's a lot of uh, smart, good education uh, in the U.S., in, in, in India. And people are generally trying to be, you know, uh, build their careers with technology companies 
and what I haven't seen in the 1990s and what I'm seeing right now, there's a huge sort of, you know, a sea of change going on right now. Do you, do you think India is going to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to automation? In, in the sense that even yourself, you, you, you moved into this new role where your company is really designed to automate a lot of those yeah. processes that were previously done by thousands of people in India. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I think uh, from my perspective, when I look at, uh, you know, uh, the way the roles have transformed, I mean, right now, if you read a lot of what's going on in India, I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of the technology companies aren't hiring as much because automation is firmly starting to take a grip and uh, on, on what's going on. Uh, so with is companies. the BPO industry looking a little shaky now? Do you think? I, I think it, it, you know, the whole premise is that of a BPO industry is that, you know, you work off uh, the technology platforms of, you know, your clients. But if the clients are in the midst of automating their business processes, by that extension of that logic, you don't need as many people to sort yeah. of process the transaction. So I think it's going through a transformation. I think even on the technology side, whether it's, uh, you know, with, with, with the emergence of cloud and, and uh, you know, AI and stuff like that, uh, the way that people are doing their technologies, the way that they're modernizing their technologies, you don't need those heavy lifting skills anymore. You'll always need it for a point in time because people will still have to deal with legacy. Um, but I think a lot of the large SIs, uh, like my earlier company Infosys, is going through a transformation and they will continue to sort of, you know, change how they're servicing their clients. Uh, to stay ahead of the curve, and that may not be, you know, they may not want to be a 500,000 people organization uh, because I think the kind of skill sets that you need don't really require that kind of heavy lifting anymore. So, speaking of legacy systems, let's uh, let's talk about your favorite subject, which I believe is insurance. Yes, and in particular, life insurance. Right. And you know, from a consumer perspective, life insurance can be one of the most confusing, archaic, complicated products, right. uh, you know, to to interact with. But it's even worse, I think, from an enterprise perspective when you're looking at their systems. Yeah. Um, just how in need of digital transformation would you say that the traditional insurance sector is in the United States? Well, uh, I, you know, I think everybody would agree that uh, insurance is perhaps, to put it mildly, a laggard when it comes to technology adoption. Uh, some of it has to do with legacy, the fact that uh, historically, uh, people have put policies when they've when they've sold policies. Carriers have sold policies, whether it's in the life or the annuity side. Uh, they've not done much with the technology because once the contract is sold, all you need to do is maintain it. There's right. very little incentive for you to sit and keep modernizing the systems. Uh, and, and there has been a lot of M and A in the insurance industry. So you're saying that essentially you're just buying policies which 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 exist on legacy platforms. That's right. And invariably you end up with those legacy platforms. And I think uh, uh, the, the reality is that most organizations, they have kept putting their policies on different platforms. So we were really uh, you know, talking about some carriers who have 14, 15, sometimes up to 20 platforms with different policies. So not only are they maintaining 12, 15, 20 different uh, infrastructures for those platforms, but the resources and the people required to do anything with it, and any maintenance or any upgrades is to all those platforms. And that obviously is a very, you know, huge effort uh, financially as well. So I think uh, some of it is again, you know, while, while there is a desperate need to change that, because I think uh, uh, the reason there has been a bit of an inertia is because there is very little return 
on those investments that they would choose to make. So always the decision is should be modernized or just keep it as it is and let those policies run off because eventually they do. You know, you can keep those policies, 100,000 policies on a platform and then after 20 years you might have only 5,000 because right. of the attrition rate of, you know, uh, people generally dying or sort of, you know, withdrawing their what, policies. What is, what, is, what is the, I guess, the data construct of a policy? I mean, is it, it's just a series of rules, it right? Is. It is. It's, it's very simple. I mean, you know, you're basically, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the simplest level, it's your, it's, it's, it's your uh, personal details with the amount of the policies and the kind of policies that you're buying into. If it's an annuity, you know, are there different kind of riders, you know, uh, are there a certain kind of plans that you want to sort of, you know, buy into. Uh, and uh, if it's a life insurance policy, it's a whole or term. So it's it's a very simple product in the in at, at the. It's, at it's the almost like a, it's almost like a preferences data file, right? It is, <laughs> but there are so many. But you know, clearly, uh, the one thing you have to hand it to the insurance companies, they've gotten creative in terms of uh, the product setup. So they've obviously got become smarter about how they're creating those products to attract a different set of customers and then obviously giving different kinds of returns on it. So uh, while the basic information remains the same, I think the complexity arises is because the variations on those products create you know different kind of product sets as the case might be. Right. So, uh, but that's not an excuse to sort of, you know, uh, hang your hat on and say that, well, that's why I have, you know, 20 year old green screen systems that are maintaining those policies. But insurance companies are also seeing a lot of other data as well. Uh, I mean, aside from the policies, uh, they use a lot of actuarial yeah. information. They know the outcomes of yeah. what happened. Yeah, it's a big, <laughs> big part of the business. Uh, uh, to what extent have they to date been leveraging all of that historic data to make smarter business decisions? I, I think uh, the actuarial side and, and the underwriting side, I think in general, has always been good. They may right, because that is their business. That is their business. So, yeah. you know, one, one would imagine that they're, they're uh, overly invested in, in, that, in that field. Uh, how much of the existing data they're using is questionable. I think, uh, without a doubt, in my mind, I think they are. They are. Uh, they've got some of the smartest people working on that on that side of the business. But uh, once they've sold their policies, how do they actually use that data that they currently have to build new products is always questionable and suspect. So, if, you know, from one of the biggest challenges in any kind of transformation is not the technology, but the cultural side. Yeah. So what have been your experiences working with some of these organizations overcoming those kind of barriers? I, I think, you know, uh, most carriers at least have the right intentions. They all they all believe that they need to, uh, you know, make their... The road uh, to hell is paved with good intentions. It is, always is. <laughs> uh, but I think sometimes it, it, it gets lost because uh, trying to get an organization to move in a direction that you want to uh, is is uh, not, not always easy. Uh, you know, I keep using this tagline that you know we are trying to future-proof your business, which is basically making sure that we are making investments on your behalf, so that you don't need to make them. So if we are, if you're working with uh, as, like SE2, uh, you know, in, in our context, we are spending a lot of money upgrading our systems and getting to digital and you know doing it as fast as we can, so you don't need to you need to invest uh, from that standpoint. Uh, I think most uh, carriers uh, understand that uh, you know uh, maintaining legacy systems is a burden. Uh, I think there's a financial aspect to it and then there's a cultural aspect to that. And the financial aspect is just numbers, it's just a spreadsheet game and people will have the answer very quickly. It's getting the whole organization behind that initiative. And you will always have uh, you know, situations where uh, one uh, particular instance or one particular failure will sort of you know, have a huge setback and the organization will choose to do nothing for a long period of time. I think it's really you know, 
pushing and plowing through those setbacks to get to the other side, which is where the real, the real reward is. Uh, you know, I, I, I suspect each carrier, each insurance company has its own culture, but at the heart of it, it is a risk-averse business. So it's not, it's not surprising to me that there is a lot of hesitancy and, and uh, people sitting on the fence a lot in terms of wanting to uh, you know, uh, take that next leap of faith. Because, you know, to be fair to them, they are heavily regulated. There are issues they yeah. don't want to, uh, you know, uh, especially for their largest customers, you know, uh, who, who have policies with them, there's a lot of trust and faith issues. So they want to make sure that they're doing them the right things as well. well I can imagine the people whose job it was maintaining legacy systems yeah. would probably, it would be an obvious source of pushback. Yeah, they would, yeah. But do you also encounter unexpected resistance from other levels of leadership who are maybe just comfortable with making decisions in a certain way and in a certain time frame that was only possible in the more analog era? I think so, I think so. I think historically the, the biggest question that they ask when they want to sort of you know upgrade their system or modernize their systems or do business with us is how do you mitigate risk? And you know, because uh, they want to make sure that their uh, policyholders don't feel any impact of what's going on at the back end. Right. And the kind of stuff that we're trying to do is it's not always easy to give them that assurance. So it's balancing those individuals who are obviously very concerned and you know, uh, you know, you typically even if, and I keep saying this, you know, you may be hitting 99% SLAs, but it's that 1% that will make the most noise, uh, which will sort of, you know, reverberate, you know, and, and define the relationship, you know, of, of a service provider along with, uh, uh, with a carrier. So I think people, you know, who, who have dealt with those analog systems, uh, there, are, there are carriers right now that we work with where, you know, their systems are so old, they don't have the people who know those technologies to maintain it anymore. But still, they're running with it because there's a huge risk of, you know, moving some of those blocks over to a third party administrator like us. So those struggles will continue, yeah. but I think it's getting better. I think uh, people are starting to be a little more aggressive about how they want to do it because I think it's, it's, it's going to start catching up very, very quickly. I was speaking to someone on the show just recently who is, um, you know, runs the, the data science unit at a big financial regulator. And he, he was saying, he, he's observing that there's sort of going to be this race between, in, in, especially in financial services, between those companies who are, who are trying to get their senior leaders to accept algorithmic systems yeah. and delegate more of the decision making to digital workflows to those new entrants who don't have any legacy and and design a business from scratch to work that way. Yeah. Yeah, I I think insurance industry is a little far from that. Yeah. I, I, but I do believe uh, that's like the right what, approach. What, what percentage of policies are on some sort of legacy system at the moment in America? I mean, depending on what number you look at, uh, there are roughly about between 300 to 350 million policies, life and annuities in North America. I think uh, less than... 15% of them is outsourced to third-party administrators like us, where have we are investing in a modern platform. So I think it's, it's safe to say that between 80 and 85% <laughs> of the policies are on, on legacy platforms. Now, you know, and I, I don't think that's going to change in a hurry because it's a large number anyway. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and as I mentioned in the past, that, you know, the challenges that they have is, you know, do you let those policies sort of attrite and retire? And is it really worth changing? and? You know, flipping the switch and moving those policies onto a modern platform because it's not adding any incremental value. And that's where the struggle continues, in my mind. Well, I guess the back end is one thing, but the front end is yeah. another area where life insurance set, is set to be disrupted. Yeah. And 
you know, you have players like Haven Life yes. now, uh, which has been spun out of Mass Mutual, who are being very aggressive about, you know, new types of digital interfaces right. and using machine learning and AI yeah, to yeah. change underwriting. Yeah. You know, what's your take on, on, on some of those changes? I think it's here to stay. I mean, I think it's going to be, you're going to see more of those. Uh, I, I think, in, in my mind, you have to start moving you know, the needle in terms of how you're going about and approaching digital transformations. I think what, you know, Haven Life is doing is fantastic. Uh, you know, we are certainly, from our perspective also, last year we introduced a fully digital life product, uh, you, know, you know, for our customers. So we're, right. we're onboarding some of those as well. Uh, in, in my mind, but I think it has to be a combination of front end and back end. You need to be in a position where... Well, what, what can you, if you have a fully digital back end, what can you do on the front end that was very difficult before? But I think, you know... It definitely it, would speed up your underwriting, right? Of course it would, to a certain extent. But I think, you know, if, if you're still running, uh, you know, you, you can you know, you can have the engine, uh, you know, of, of a very slow car and, you know, mask it as a Porsche, but it's still going to run very slowly, right? So you can, <laughs> you, can, you can do whatever you need to from that perspective. I think from our perspective, we're trying to change, you know, both the engine as well as the, uh, as the sort of chassis, so to speak. So we want to make it look good and so that people can use it and like to sort of use it. But at the same time, unless you have the back end supporting all that front end, something's going to break at some point in time. But I think it's it's fantastic that companies are sort of you know trying to get to digital. I think that's the way to go. Uh, with uh, over the next ten years, the profile of the policyholders and their customers is going to change. So I think those are forward-looking companies that are making the right investments to sort of you know stay ahead of the curve in many ways. And, and well, well tomorrow's know. tomorrow's customer of life insurance has grown up speaking to Alexa and yeah. and watching TV shows on Netflix yeah. and uh, buying Apple products and you know for them to then have to deal with a very paper-bound traditional sales channel. Yes. It's making life difficult for yourself, basically, as a carrier. It is, and I think, you know, we've, uh, we've tried to sort of balance out <laughs> that uh, future looking, because we, we can't stop investing in the future from our perspective. I was mentioning to you earlier that if you walk into our office in New Jersey, you will see a bunch of people with those virtual reality classes, you know, you know testing stuff out, and, and we, Actually, a year and a half ago, uh, year ago, actually, we we, uh, we had Alexa functionality for all our uh, customers that they would chose to sort of go with us. And how how would you use Alexa with your insurance policy? Well, you know, you would say, you know, uh, my policy number is, you know, whatever seven-digit number. Can you tell me what you know the amount is, and you know, or it'll remind you when when it's supposed to it's supposed to make a payment. You can check on the balance. You can check on right. everything else. So as long as you're able to, uh, you know, communicate and and with the policy numbers and you know pick your carrier and saying uh, if your carrier falls, you know gives you that functionality we're able to provide it you know to the carrier so we are on our side we're making all those investments because yes the adoption rate is not there yet i mean uh, but i think eventually it'll get there so even virtual reality as i was mentioning you know uh, how many people are going to actually use those virtual reality glasses to you know figure out what their policy details are but the functionality is available today so we want to make sure that we are making uh, you know, we are, we are playing around with a lot of, uh, you know, we are doing a lot of R&D from our perspective because I, I don't think this industry can be static uh, for a long time. They, they, they don't have a choice but to innovate and get ahead of the curve because insurance for a long time has, you know, been a laggard in many ways. Uh, and I suspect the time is right and it's coming quickly for them to start changing. One of the, the things I've noticed speaking to a lot of people that work in big insurance companies that they worry about the most is how they're going to engage and sell to the next generation. Yeah. Um, because it's one thing trying to persuade a 
you know, a 55-year-old who's yeah. seen a lot of difficult times. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite traditional in their mentality about life insurance, but talking to an 18 or 19-year-old yeah. is very difficult. So, so what have you... What have you observed that some of the smarter players are doing in regards to this? Well, I think you know, the, the problem, uh, well, I think there are two or three different sort of problems, right? I mean, even if you take the, you know, the, the person who's just entered the workforce, let's keep 18 euros aside because I think, uh, you, know, uh, a, a, you know, a dollar means a lot more to them than somebody who's a 30-year-old. So I think if I look at people who are entering the workforce, I think carriers are trying to get smart about how to uh, uh, dig into their paychecks because you know somebody who's making 30 40 50 60 thousand dollars you know may have a different perception of savings as compared to somebody who's making a lot more money and of course you know the age matters as well so is there a way that we can actually change our approach and our our, our uh, disc, you know conversations with them so that they understand that investing in a life insurance policy or an annuity is going to you know serve them in the long term and what is the sort of communication and the marketing and the branding around it yeah the other thing also is important is getting uh, you know, some of these companies, these large companies, to start talking to their employees about it as well. Because unless you're doing that communication, unless you're offering it as a benefit, as an upside, not very many people are going to be interested to do it. I mean, today, if you're working in the US, you know, by default, you have to pick a life insurance policy or, or you have to pick the benefit plan. If you add a certain channel to that, that you know, here is another investment opportunity, you know, yes, they will be slowly, you know, the people will be slow in terms of getting to it. But if people are able to communicate and do a good job of, you know, showing them the upside, I suspect there will be a lot more people signing up to it. So I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, uh, changing the messaging and having the right tools available so that they can access it. And, you know, this whole uh, this whole generation is, is an instantaneous sort of generation. Yeah, they, they want can, feedback. They want feedback right, right. away. If right? they can't see the status of their policy on their phone immediately, it's... And which is where I think, you know, carriers need to sort of, you know, uh, step up and obviously have that technology to have that immediacy effect, you know, uh, or at least the, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for younger generations to sort of, you know, see what, what, what their policy is doing at this point in time. I don't think those technologies have really caught up. I mean, it's there, but I don't yeah. think people are but, actually using but, but it But it, it feels like there must be a, a bigger idea at the heart of all of this because, you know, when you look at other areas of insurance like, you know, uh, property and casualty, uh, we're going to move to, you know, potentially the real-time underwriting of risk. Yes. Uh, where your specific behaviors, whether the way you drive, um, you know, the, the lifestyle decisions you make will change your health insurance policies or change your auto insurance, and you'll see real-time feedback to yeah. your premiums. But life still feels like this, especially when you're young. Yeah. It's very boring. It is. And it's very far in the future. And it's very abstract. Yeah. And It's very hard to explain to somebody who's in that age. Yeah, and it's not like a normal investment. I mean, think about it. You, want to, you can invest in Bitcoin or your life insurance policy, right? So, yeah. so is there a, a more disruptive idea you know, at the heart of all of this? Well, I, I think... As of right now, I don't, I don't see it yet. I mean, unless there are individuals who are sort of, you know, working in a garage somewhere in California to sort of disrupt the industry, which I'm sure they are. Uh, I think the industry has struggled. It's fair to say that, you know, to come up with an idea to sort of attract that particular age group, uh, in my opinion. Uh, but I think, you know, 
some of it, I, I can't put it all on technology or all on legacy. I think, but some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, your ability to market a particular product and hopefully get returns, because even insurance companies have to make money off it. You know, they just can't offer the policies and, you know, not necessarily get anything out of it. But to have the affiliated systems and technologies to sort of, you know, support that idea is also an investment and it's a big ask. So yeah. what is the return on investment for those, let's say, 20 to 40 year olds, which are typically the laggards in terms of buying up an annuity or, a, or an insurance policy? And what is the investment to back it up? So if I want to attract a lot of money coming in, um, you know, uh, in, in the form of them investing in, in, in those policies, do I have the right technologies to give them, you know, the kind of stuff that I want? I suspect, you know, as technology starts getting better, you were talking about AI and, and you know, our ability to sort of construct products which are very, very specifically tailored, maybe smaller dollar item numbers. Um, but I think, uh, as of right now, I don't see anything out there that is, you know, sort of revolutionizing the industry and people are talking about it, you know, uh, as much as, as, as I think it should be. Yeah. Although when you, when you look at what Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway are doing now in health insurance, you know, if someone like an Amazon or Google were to do life insurance, yeah. you can imagine they would approach it very differently. That would be game changing. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think in many ways uh, that would uh, challenge the very core of the industry, <laughs> right? Um, I think they would have to contend with a lot of regulation that's actually out there, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, not unlike other industries, but this is very heavily regulated. I mean, eventually you are... Um, and and uh, for the kind of work that we do, we need licenses in all you know most of the states that we actually operate in the U.S. So I think it's it's one of those things that people will have to keep their eyes out open for. Uh, we're certainly out there looking for. So we're certainly out there looking you know to sort of invest in and and sort of uh, partner with other players who are creative and innovative in yeah. our entire value chain. Well, I mean, from a transformation standpoint, insurance is an interesting case study, I think, for other industries because of its degree of conservatism. Sure. Um, so for leaders, you know, who are looking at the insurance industry as, a, as an example, you know, what are some of the things you've seen as a sort of a successful approach for leading a transformation? Yeah, I, I, th I think, you know, uh, first is intent, right? I mean, you know, you, you start with the end in mind. I think most uh, carriers typically when they start off uh, looking at their, and I'm just talking about, you know, the industry that, that, that I'm in or the, the businesses that we try to sort of attract, is if they've got 11 or 12 platforms, right? What is the investment that is actually required to sort of convert those platforms to a modern platform? I think that's the starting point. From their perspective, they need to decide whether it's actually worth their, worth their while. Culture is always going to be something that comes up and, you know, uh, and, and we try and at least be more proactive in terms of uh, being as risk averse. They are, you know, trying to point out all the possible things that, they, that could go wrong because I think that's what they're always worried about. So from my perspective, if, if there's a way to sort of, you know, mitigate this whole uh, uh, and be a little more aggressive in terms of uh, going ahead with the cultural changes that the organization will necessarily go through when they're going through a transformation, uh, I think that's a good starting step. Uh, we have to realize that most of the organizations that we talk to, especially the carriers, and when we start about taking their policies and putting them onto our platform, uh, clearly there's going to be some impact, uh, you know, uh, in, in in the organization, even from a from from their internal headcount perspective. But I think the larger goal almost always is that you know you're building and you're investing in a technology that's eventually going to take you to the next five, ten years, as opposed to being legacy. And that, to me, is 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 the balance that they always need to almost always strike. Just, just in terms of headcount, when when you have put in a total digital environment for these, you know, 
quite traditional businesses, how does it change the kinds of people that they need? Like yeah. what, what are the new types of employees that they suddenly find themselves looking for? In, in, in my business? Not in your business, in the client's okay. business. I, I, I think, uh, look, the, you know, the, the reality is that every day there's something new that's coming out and it's hard to keep up with it. Uh, but at the same time, you can't ignore legacy. So I think increasingly the skills to maintain those legacies are becoming challenging to find and trying to keep up a vibrant organization which is always keeping up with the new technologies out there is, is, is always going to be interesting. So I've seen companies actually go ahead and separate their technology departments, uh, you know, in one maintaining the legacy and one actually doing, you know, right. fast forward future thinking which has got nothing to do with the past. Uh, <laughs> so and, you, you got all the Betamax and <laughs> VHS yeah. engineers yeah. in one corner and you got people working on shiny new stuff. Really and that's exactly, yeah, that has to be the approach because you can't expect those guys who are doing the shiny new stuff to address the VHS problems because they don't even know what that VHS looks like, right? <laughs> so I think in many ways, it, there has to be that uh, uh, that balance that has to be struck because you, 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 you've still got to keep your lights on and business running and you don't have a choice. But I think the piece that they are, uh, a lot of companies are in doing is separating and then doing the right thing by separating you know, the, the future and the, the shiny new box and the shiny new objects that they're going after is creating a completely separate new team so that all the, so nothing is sort of kosher. Everything is, is on the table. Nothing is uh, you know, off limits. Uh, you know, I think from that perspective, it's the right approach to take. Gotham, it's wonderful seeing you again. Uh, you thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.